Today on Let Me Be Frank, we're joined by Susan DiBartoli, who runs Little Flower Pilgrimages and who has written a brand new book called Welcoming the Christ Child with Padre Pio. In it, Susan takes the good saints' words and examples and to give us daily reflections through Advent. It's almost like a long retreat helping us prepare for Christmas. This is going to be a really good conversation, so keep your radio right here at 1350 AM and 103.9 FM, or listen on your phone using the Veritas mobile app. The app is available at the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, or VeritasCatholic.com. Let Me Be Frank is brought to you by a grant from Foundations in Faith. Foundations in Faith embraces innovative approaches to funding pastoral care programs in the Diocese of Bridgeport. Resources focus on energizing lifelong faith formation and discipleship, and fostering a commitment to justice and accompaniment with our most vulnerable. From seminarians to retired priests, from baptism to last rites, from suburbs to inner cities, the reach is broad and the impact is meaningful. For more information, visit them on the web at foundationsinfaith.org. Okay, here we go. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. My name is Steve Lee, and it is my great pleasure, as always, to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Hello, my friend. Good morning, Excellency. How are you today? Doing great. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Thank God. Raring for Christmas. <laughs> yeah, tremendous. Yeah, yeah and, and booking through Advent, it feels like. So, Well, as I said the last time we were, Advent is, a, is the longest it could possibly be. So I'm cheating on the other end and getting ready for Christmas. <laughs> Don't tell anyone. No. Especially the Pope. Don't tell anybody. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad you have a very popular show, so everybody knows now. Uh, I'm going to confession soon anyway, so that's okay. <laughs> well, so uh, I guess I'll get to it, Excellency. Um, we have a, a really great guest today. Her name is Susan DiBartoli, and Susan is a pilgrimage tour operator and owner of Little Flower Tours and Travel. She, by the way, she's helping with the cause for canonization of Mary Pyle, who was an assistant to Padre Pio. And Susan is a lady commander of the equestrian order of the Holy Sepulchre of Jerusalem. And she's on specifically today for many things, but also because she's the author of a brand new book called Welcoming the Christ Child with Padre Pio, which is a beautiful book with daily readings for Advent. Each day helps you follow Padre Pio's incredible example and welcome the Christ child into your home and heart during Advent. Uh, and you know a little bit about the book too, Excellency. So Susan DiBartoli, welcome to Let Me Be Frank. Thank you. Welcome for having Thank you for having me. And a good morning, Bishop Frank. Susan, it's always great to see you. Right? <laughs> we, we have been traveling partners in pilgrimages since Moses crossed the Red Sea, I think, basically. <laughs> Um, so, uh, I always ask my guests the same question. Tell us about Susan DiBartoli. Susan DiBartoli, as you mentioned, is a pilgrimage tour operator. But um, Susan comes from Brooklyn originally. Okay. As a child, I had a great, 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 not a great great. My grandmother was great because she was the one who really brought me to the faith that I have today. And, um, she taught me the rosary. She taught me about Fatima and started my journey in life. And as I grew 
older, as I moved on, I became more faithful. And I have to say, she was very instrumental in that. And just a a little thing about that. You know, my grandmother every day at 4.30 would say the rosary. She'd go in her bedroom and she would say the rosary. It impressed me very much. But I wondered, why did she do that at the same time every day? And the first time that I went to Italy, to the town of Intradacqua in Abruzzi, where she was born, I was in the town square, and at 4.30 I heard the church bells ring. So, of course, I went over to the church, and everybody was saying the rosary. So she brought that with her. Great. And so every day at 4.30 she said the rosary. And it, it impressed me that she brought her town along with her, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as I said, um, my life was a lot about faith. I have such, I have faith, such great faith because of her. But I have, I went to college for a while and for two years. I didn't finish college, but I worked in the motion picture industry, which wasn't for me. And then I had this idea to start this pilgrimage company. But the pilgrimage company is important because to me, it's a ministry. It's not a job. It's a ministry. And every person that I bring there, and Bishop Frank, you could attest Mm -hmm. to this. It's Mm -hmm. so important. Mm -hmm. It's so important because we meet uh, Our Lady in the different places where she appeared. We meet Our Lord walking in his footsteps and so on. So that's who I really am. Um, How long have you been doing the pilgrimages, Susan? 32 years. Wow. Wow. Tell us about its name, because there's a great story attached to to the name. (laughs) Tell us. Well, when I started the pilgrimage company for the first five years, as in most businesses, I really wasn't making money. And then I, I decided after five years, well, I have to make a decision here you know, because I'm putting my money into it and I'm not getting anywhere. So I decided to make a novena to St. Therese, the little flower. And so about the fourth day into the novena, I'm working on it. And at the time, I only did Fatima pilgrimages. And I was working on a pilgrimage. And suddenly I heard like this voice saying, St. Faustina, Sister Faustina. And so... I ignored it and I heard, I said, what is this? So I knew I had a book on uh, Sister Faustina. I went into my bedroom where the book was. I picked up the book and out of the book fell rose petals. And I said, oh my God, that's my answer. She's telling me continue. And I don't, and because of that, because she gave me this message, I changed the name of my company to Little Flower. And then in um, when Sa- when Sister Faustina became Saint Faustina, mm-hmm. I brought 135 people to Rome too. Is that right? Wow! Yes. Wow! But with World Youth Day, we brought like more than that. My goodness! Yeah. Right. But now, Susan, so you have led pilgrimages to more than Fatima. Obviously, you have yes. gone all over the world. So tell us some of the more exotic places you have been. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, places of Our Lady, like Akita in Japan. I've been, really? Tell I us did, about that. I did not, I have to say, I did not run that pilgrimage. Um, John Haffitt did. John Haffitt was the president of uh, 
the World Apostolate of Fatima, which I was, I was, and I still am a member of. I was the secretary at one time. Oh, in New Jersey. Is that the one in New Jersey? Yes. 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 And uh, that's all of that land that that's on was mm-hmm. John Haffitt's land. He donated all that land for that. Really? Shrine. Yes. Yes. Well, he that's had a, a beautiful place. Washington, New Jersey, correct? Yes. Magnificent yeah, I go once place. a year. Celebrate go. Mass. Good for you. It's beautiful. That's where I met Mother Teresa, too. Wonderful place. Um, So anyway, Akita, Japan, I think is perhaps the best um, as far as exotic. But uh, places like Lourdes, Fatima, of course. People ask me, well, I went to Lourdes. Why should I go to Fatima? And I always say to them, because in Lourdes, when you go, you ask Our Lady for something. But when you go to Fatima, she asks you for something. And people say, what do you mean she asked me? I say, go there. You'll see what I mean. And you always come home with something in your mind that mm-hmm. Our Lady wants mm-hmm. you to do mm-hmm. for our Lord. Mm-hmm. So that's. Mm-hmm. But if I have to say the best of all, I have to say the Holy Land. Because there's nothing that compares to walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Nothing. Right. nothing right. Nowhere in the world. Right. You know, it's, it's when we went... I remember Monsignor Peter Vacari, who at that time was the rector of St. Joseph Seminary in Dunwoody. Um, I was there for a seminary and visit, and he had mentioned um, that beautiful image of the Holy Land being the fifth gospel. Mm. So that when you read the gospels after having visited the Holy Land, you read them in a totally different way. Right. And I think that's very true. At least it's true for me because you can see it in your head. You can see it. Right. Absolutely. I know I sit in church and I listen to the gospel and I'm there. I'm there because, you know, it's amazing. How many times have you been to the Holy Land, though? The Holy Land five times. Wow. Yeah. So. And I plan to go five more with you, of course. Well, I'm a me. <laughs> in a wheelchair. I'll be in a wheelchair. <laughs> I'll be in Hey, you're going to have to wheel me. I could be your mother. Are you kidding? Yeah. Now, let me tell you. So the <laughs> most provocative image I recall from the Holy Land, believe it or not, and I may have mentioned this when we spoke about it maybe a year, two years ago, and still to this day, are not the sacred sites where Jesus performed the miracles or where Jesus, um, where the mystery of faith occurred, okay? And they are beautiful and they were very touching and very moving. But it was the, it was the desert, particularly the mountain of the temptations that is both extraordinarily stark but very provocative spiritually to think the Lord walked there for 40 days and 40 nights, right? Right. I mean, we we complain on Good Friday that we have to fast or Ash Wednesday we have to fast. Some people will complain it's too much. Can I have this? Can I, I mean, imagine 40 days and 40 nights in that place, in caves, right? It's amazing. Right. Absolutely I'll, amazing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring back a memory to you. I have a beautiful picture of it. We were on the bus going, I don't remember, but in the Judean desert. And you said to me, look. And I looked over and there was a tree. Do you remember? Oh, there yes. One yes. Tree. yes. And you said, yes. look at that. And I remember yes. that. Right. Even, even in the places that seem to be most dead, God can bring life. That was the, right? It was like a little parable. Mm-hmm. Yes. And the monastery. Yeah, carved out into the cliffs, oh remember? God, I thought, how do you get there? 
Exactly. Yeah. I never figured out how you get there. No. I guess it, you have to go down, but I don't know. And the Bedouins too. Yes. The tribes that live in the desert and the very difficult life they live. Remarkably yes, they difficult. Right? They really do. Yeah. It's amazing. So, so um so you're among the Marian sites would Fatima be your the one Absolutely. that resonates deep, deeply for you? Most deeply? Mm-hmm. Yes. I don't know yeah. what that is. Okay. Yeah. I, yes, I said, Sure. I've said this many times because yeah. Fatima is uh, um, is the place that my mother was also very much. Um, she was very much um, tied to spiritually, Fatima. Yep. Okay, so as you know, Susan, or maybe you don't know, but we started this um, um, this initiative, which is really an oratory and guild called the Sacred Heart Guild. It's it's actually the oratory of the Most Sacred Heart of Jesus. And Father Michael Clark was on the show about a month and a half ago, month ago maybe. And it is really trying to use the the power of beauty to unlock faith. So your ministry is a is a big piece of that of that effort to unlock beauty wherever we can, in whatever diocese where people come. Because you can't just move the mind, you have to move the heart. And I think that's what pilgrimages do, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, they absolutely do. They they do move our minds and our hearts. You know, beautiful, these beautiful, beautiful buildings that are erected to the saints, to Our Lady, they're amazing. And we go in there and we look at them at the stained glass windows, and it really brings it all to life for us. Mm-hmm. It makes us understand Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the places I don't think you've been to is Our Lady of Pilar in Zaragoza, Spain. We'll have to go there. And um, that's where Our Lady appeared to St. James. He was leaving oh. Santiago mm-hmm. and he because he said, I'm getting nowhere. This is not happening. And she told him to go back. And he did. And that, and you know, you've been to Santiago. That's absolutely amazing. And all of that is because Our Lady told him in Zaragoza, go back, and he went right, back. Right, you know? Right. Although and I've never been. I've never been. You've never been to Santiago de Compostela? Oh, no. my goodness. No. Oh, my goodness. No, put that on the list. <laughs> absolutely, it's there. So, so of the of, of the holy sites of the saints, where have you been? We've spoken about Our Lady. We've spoken about Our Lord. What about the saints? St. Patrick, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, in France, there's a lot. St. Martin. There's... Um, oh St. Therese. Thanks. Absolutely, St. Therese, the little flower. That's amazing. Normandy, all of Normandy is her. It's all her. Mm-hmm. And I did, I did a pilgrimage once on a cruise. We went out of Southampton. We really? sailed to La Havre. 17 uh-huh. days. We sailed to La Havre and did Lesu. We went to the town where she was born, Alençon, and then we went to her town where she lived, her convent. Got back on the boat, went to Bordeaux, went to Lourdes. Got back on the boat, went to, I don't remember the port in Spain, but went to Pamplona, you know. And then we went to Vigo, so we went to Santiago de Compostela. Mm-hmm. Then we went into the port 
into Porto in, in uh, Portugal, and we went to Fatima. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Wow. But uh, Saint Ther- I think St. Therese, the little flower, is the best. And on this pilgrimage, this World Jute, we're going to Avila. Yes. Yes, we're going to go to Avila, right, St. Teresa. And, of course, in Italy, we have been to lots of places. Oh, my goodness. St. Francis, St. Anthony. Oh, my God. St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas. We've been there. In Sicily. Remember that? Yeah. Yeah. Madonna dell'Agrima in Sicily was beautiful, too. Loretto. We've been to Loretto. Right. Right. I'm trying to think of all of them. I must confess, I have not been to St. Ambrose's tomb. I've not been to Milan. Believe it or not, no. I lived in Italy for five years, but I did not go to Milan. And people have often asked me, well, why, why would you not do that? And it's not because I, I had purposely avoided it, but on some level, Milan strikes me as a big modern city. It is, I don't and know. And I grew up in a big modern city. So the last thing I wanted to do you is go to, to another big modern it. city. Right. So I... Um, so I didn't. So that's please God. One day, uh, I would like to go to. Uh, it's the Duomo, correct in Milan. The Duomo, uh, Saint Charles Borromeo, I think, is there also. Right. Yes. 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 Yeah, so one day, maybe next time yeah. I go to. to you know, Italy. I know, I know you. I don't remember when we went to Stresa, which I know you like Lago Maggiore. Mm-hmm. On the way, did you do we see the beautiful statue to Saint Charles Borromeo at the beginning? Yes, like yes, we did. Yes, we did. Yeah, yes. because that yes. was his town. And the Borromeo Islands, right. that's his family. Correct. But Correct. yes, uh, Milan is a city, well, of course, the Last Supper is yes. there. Mm-hmm. So that's something that you should, did, you never saw that? or you? No, didn't? no. Oh, no. my goodness. I lived a deprived youth. <laughs> uh, yeah, I forgot about that. You were always studying but, while everybody else was having fun. <laughs> oh, my God. But you see, of course, in Rome, I had a tremendous amount of fun because you could have people like St. Ignatius, St. Philip Neri, I mean, St. Catherine. I mean, it's just yeah. like, so we've been to all those places when we we've went to Rome to in the pilgrimage that you led, Right. right? Yeah, right, absolutely. we've been to Siena. That was mm-hmm. wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But now you have a big devotion to Padre Pio. Yes. So before we go on break, tell us a little bit about the devotion. Then you could talk about your book on the second half when we come okay. back. But so, so how did Susan meet Padre Pio is the first question I have. Well, the first time I heard about him probably was when I was a teenager. Because mm-hmm. at that time, you have to remember, after World War II, Many of the men who came back from um, being stationed in Italy, especially in Cerenola, which is near San Giovanni Rotondo, these these men actually met Padre Pio. I became friends with one of these men. His name is Ray Ewan. And Ray Ewan served mass with Padre Pio seven times while he was stationed in Cerenola. And of course, in my book is the miracle over San Giovanni with the men who were flying there. We'll get to that later. But anyway, um, Ray was, as I said, as a teenager, I had heard about him, Mm -hmm. the men who came back. That's how the devotion became so strong in America. Mm -hmm. So, but of course, as a teenager, I had a lot more important things to do. So, you know, he was there in my mind. But so anyway, when I started my pilgrimages, Father Keller 
asked me if I would do a pilgrimage for him. And I said, okay. And it was 1995. And I went there and we had, again, we had a group of over a hundred people. And we went to San Giovanni Rotundo. It was my first experience there. And I remember walking in the monastery, they call it a convent, walking in the convent by Padre Pio's cell and you could feel him. You really? could feel him in the halls. Mm. And, you know, you, you know that there's something wonderful happening here. Mm-hmm. And, of course, as we know, Padre Pia would walk those halls at night, mm-hmm. and sometimes he actually would be carrying the infant Jesus in his arms. And he would go in the middle of the night, and one of the monks would get up, and they'd see him, and he'd go by all aglow holding this child, and they would just fall down and kneel in front of him. He never even saw them there. That's who Padre Pio was, an amazing man. So when, on that first pilgrimage is when I really opened my eyes to who Padre Pio was, the amazing man, not the miracle worker, you know. That's nice. There were great miracles. But why were these miracles? Why was he given these miracles? Because he was such a simple, holy man. And from when he was five years old, he consecrated himself to the Lord. So the Padre Pio that I met at that time was the one who I fell in love with and who I started to follow. Mm -hmm. And I would bring pilgrimages there Mm -hmm. because of my great devotion to him to a person who I only kind of knew about, totally ignored, I'm sorry to say, until that moment. Mm -hmm. But from that moment on, and what I've learned about him is just amazing. When you get to know the man, he really touches your heart. Mm -hmm. He said something very important. He said that his heart was fused with Jesus. And that impressed me. That truly impressed me. And mm-hmm. I think that if we if we think about who he is, if we read about who he is, you will understand that the miracles are great, but the miracles are not possible. He's not a miracle worker. Certain every miracle is from the Lord. The miracles were possible because he was a simple man who is going right. to the Lord asking for them. Right. That's right. what it so, was about. So tell us a little bit about his life. What, what, if for, for people who are listening to us who have heard of him, of course, but give us just a few inklings of his, like when he was young, his family, yes. all the rest. Well, around the age of five is when he begins to remember. So mm-hmm. he tells us as a child, mm-hmm. our Lord and our Lady, were constantly with him, appeared to him, constantly visited him. And as years went on, when he was asked why he never reported this to anyone, and he said, because I just thought they appeared to everyone, not just me. That's how simple he was. So at five years old, as I said, he consecrated his life to Jesus. Yeah, he really, he just thought it was something that happened to everybody. I wish it would happen to me, but, you know. So he moves on in his life, and about 12, around the time when he receives confirmation, he gets this feeling that he needs to be a priest. And 
-hmm. When he's 15, he enters the monastery. Now, right before he enters, he has a vision. And in that vision, I'm not going to tell you a lot about it, but in that vision, the Lord shows him good and evil. He shows him the angels and he shows him the devils. And he tells him, this is what your life will be about if you choose to take this path. And he tells him how he has to suffer. How he, I don't know if he specifically said he would have the stigmata. He doesn't say that. But he tells him that you will, at this point, give your life for me, but you don't have to do it. And he chooses at 15 to take this path. And when he tells the story, he says that that was the day I gave up the world and joined the new world to be mm. with the Lord. He put mm-hmm. the whole world aside. So he becomes he becomes a, a monk. He, he becomes a brother, okay? And in 1905, he's the first time he's bilocated. He doesn't know what's happening. He's in the choir loft um, at the monastery. And suddenly he finds himself in a garden in Udine, Italy, and Our Lady is with him. That, to me, was the most important of all his miracles. But this is the first sign of spiritual gifts, is his bilocation. Mm-hmm. And in that in that particular um miracle, because it is a miracle that lasts for 63 years, he, Our Lady entrusts a child to him, an unborn child, a child that's going to be born any minute. And it, he wonders why, why is, why is she doing this? I'm just, uh, I'm just a brother. I, I'm not even a priest. I can't possibly, he didn't understand what she meant by it or why he was there or what happened. But when she does that, the importance of it is as she is the patroness of the unborn, she is in essence making him the patron of the unborn. And he was a great defender of, of life, definitely. And uh, he, in, 19, um, in 1918, he gets the stigmata. And he suffered every single day of his life. People say, oh, I look at him and he always looks so angry. He wasn't angry. He was being tortured constantly every day. And he did it. And I, the first time I was there, I wondered why? Because I saw the, the blood on the clo- his clothing. And I said, why? Why would he do this? Why? I couldn't understand what was going on here. And then I realized that Of course he did it for the love of God, but he was able to do it because Our Lady and Our Lord never left his side. They were always there. And, of course, he died in 1968, and the stigmata went away. Right. Amazing. It is amazing. Amazing. So this is is the Veritas Catholic Network is Let Me Be Frank, and uh, His Excellency is talking with Susan DiBartoli. the owner of Little Flower Tours and Travel, and the author of a brand new book called Welcoming the Christ Child with Padre Pio. When we come back from the break, um, can't wait to hear more about this incredible saint and uh, this beautiful book. Um, We'll be right back. 
If you're concerned about your end-of-life plans, searching for a Catholic cemetery, or have loved ones who are buried in one of the 14 Catholic cemeteries throughout Fairfield County, now might be a good time to begin planning for yourself or for other family members. Call one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 to leave a message or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Many people don't realize that they can be buried with their deceased loved ones, even if all of the family's in-ground plots have been taken. The Diocese of Bridgeport Catholic Cemeteries provides in-ground burials, as well as columbarium and mausoleum options. This makes it possible to unite your family together in the same cemetery, and it's an opportunity to build a bridge for your family back to the church. Talking about this issue is not easy, but pre-need planning makes your wishes clear, reduces cost, and helps your family avoid difficult decisions at a time of grief and loss. You can start your planning now by contacting one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. We can guide you through the options, regulations, and considerations to help you make the best decisions for your family. The number is 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. All right, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. Um, we have on with us uh, Susan D. Bartoli, who has written this beautiful book, uh, Preparing Us for Advent with Padre Pio. And... Susan, my kids consider Padre Pio one of two Catholic true superheroes. And so uh, I'm looking forward to hearing more stories about him. And then uh, we would love to get into your book, of course. Yeah. yeah tell us more stories. Just like sitting at a campfire. I want to hear more <laughs> stories. <laughs> I have lots of stories about Padre Pio. I think uh, one of the important things about Padre Pio, he was a great confessor. He was, you know, the confessional is what it was all about. And sometimes people will go to him and he'd throw them out. <laughs> or, you know, he wouldn't even waste his time because he knew that they were coming there and it was more about meeting him than about confessing. And that's what they were. They were curious, you know. So he didn't like that. He would throw them out. But he, he did tell many people he could read hearts. He could read hearts. That was one of his spiritual gifts. And um, he has he had told uh, women who went into his confessional, and he said, didn't you forget something he would say? And they'd say, no, no, I said everything. And then he would remind them, remember that baby that you decided not to have? Let me tell you what that baby would have grown up to be. That's who Padre Pio was. That's why I say always a defender. And he would tell this to these people. And so some of the local men would come in and he'd just, he'd shake his head at them and say, why are you here? You know, with such nonsense. But mm-hmm. um, he was one of the greatest confessors. Mm-hmm. He would go in very, very early in the morning after mass. He would go into his confessional. He would stay there 10, 12 hours. They would actually come in and tell him, please, you need to leave now. You need to leave, especially later on in life as he was getting older. He would actually, uh, you know, in between, he'd fall asleep. I have a beautiful statue of him 
kind of sleeping in the confessional. But he, his heart was open to everyone. Mm -hmm. And he knew how to, these people, he knew how to approach them, how to make them understand that nothing was more important than prayer. We need to pray. Of course, his famous words, pray hope and don't worry. And don't worry. Right. Yeah. Well, you know what's interesting, Susan? I have a picture. It's a picture, a photograph of Padre Pio in my room, in my little apartment in Stanford. Um, and, and as I leave my bedroom, I can see it. And it is Padre Pio at the moment of the consecration at Mass, right? And he seemed like he's mesmerized. He's, he's, it's almost as if he's there and not there. And I think that's another characteristic of Padre Pio, the reverence when he celebrated Mass. Tell us about that. Well, I think his parish priest in Pietrocina said it best. That his mass is an incomprehensible mystery. It truly is. During the consecration, he had the wounds of Christ. He would actually bleed. You would see him bleeding the wounds in his hands. His mass lasted about three hours because he lived the passion at every single mass. And people would line up for his masses because they were so important. Mm -hmm. And sometimes he'd say, especially on like Christmas Eve, he would mm -hmm. say the midnight mass and he'd say two or three masses after that, people wouldn't leave because right. what you got at his masses, you're never mm -hmm. going to get anywhere else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So now let's think about this for a second. This itself is a mystery because in the typical parish, when mass ends, and people are running to their cars after about, at most, an hour, right? You're talking about masses that were three times longer, maybe more, and people didn't want to leave. Right. See, that's the difference between praying the liturgy in the mind of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and not on the part of both the, the people of God and the celebrants, right? right. It's, a, it's a humbling lesson for all priests and the faithful to really reflect on, particularly if we do Eucharist, we're going into Eucharistic revival, that there is nothing more important than that action. There's nothing more important in the nothing in the day more important. Do we act that way? Right is a question that we all have to examine. Our conscience are. The other thing I wanted to, to ask you about is the Church, in her great wisdom, often persecutes the saints <laughs> for whatever reason misunderstands them, gives them tremendous amount of problems. And I think Padre Pio is in that category, right? Is that not the oh, case? Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. More so than any saint that I'm aware of, you know. So tell but, us about that. Tell us about that. Okay. Well, word got back to Rome of goings-on in San Giovanni Rotundo. And, of course, an investigation started. And... Many reporters went there, too, and uh, interviewed him and stayed in the town and tried to understand. Padre Pio was told he could not say Mass publicly. He had to stop saying Mass. And so, of course, he was obedient, and he said his Mass alone 
And um, the people of the town were so angry, so angry because he they were being deprived of this mm-hmm. wonderful man and this wonderful mask. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this went on for quite some time. And finally, the authorities couldn't take it anymore. And they went back and they said, you have to let this man say mask. These people, they're, they're going to start to riot. And so they allowed him to say mass. Now, why were they so angry? Why were the authorities angry? They were angry because word of the miracles were coming out. Mm -hmm. And they felt that the Capuchins were, I, I don't like to use the word lying, but that they were making up stories about all these miracles and they weren't true. But they were true. They were happening. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I I talk about in my book, I talk about 28 miracles. That doesn't even touch the, the, the tip of the iceberg. Hundreds of miracles, thousands. And the people of the town, forget about the people who went there, the curious people. The people of the town had such a great devotion to Padre Pio, the simple man, not the miracle worker. And they could not understand why these people would would want these fanatical things to go on. They would not invest. If they investigated it, they always dismissed everything. It can't be true. It's not. But it was true. And eventually they came to a point where they had no choice. And I believe it was John the 23rd who actually was the one who said, no, enough is enough. And I, I don't even know if he was Pope at the time when he investigated it. And that's how it finally stopped. Mm-hmm. But for many years, on and off, they would stop him. They would stop him. Right, which is another spiritual lesson. And that is, um, let's draw the image of wearing glasses. If you need to wear glasses and the lenses are clean, you can see clearly what's before you. If you put tinted glasses on, everything else changes color. And if they're blackened, you see nothing. So in a sense, when a person comes forward to investigate something like what happened with Padre Pio, if they don't come forward with clear lenses, if they come with preconceived notions, if they come looking at it with the eyes of the world, if I could be so blunt, then you will not see what truly is there. That's right. Right? But we do that all the time in our spiritual life. You know, we relegate the spiritual to the extraordinary, the fantastic. When it's not, it's there all the time. It's all the time it's there. So again, people in authority, myself included, are always tempted to see things in an administrative and sometimes even worldly way, which in the case of Padre Pio was the wrong glasses to wear. Right? Many biases, right? Right, exactly. Okay, so now tell us about your book. <clears throat> Welcoming the Christ Child with Padre Pio. Mm-hmm. Well, First, I have to thank you, Bishop Frank, for the beautiful forward that you wrote to my book. It made it complete. Thank you so much. Oh, you're most. I was I was delighted. It was it's excellent, but it's excellent. Thank you, thank you so much. Um, 
I was approached, I'm a, I'm a board member of the Padre Pio Foundation of America. And during COVID, of course, I was doing nothing. I mean, I was writing some stories for uh, Il Volo, but beyond that, I was doing nothing. And um, Julie, who you know. Uh, yes, yes. Mine, Julie Fitzritter, the director at the Padre Pio Foundation said, why don't you write a book about Padre Pio? We need a book about Advent. And I said, I don't know. You should write it. You're the director. She said, no, everything that I know about Padre Pio came from you. So I said, all right, I'll give it a try. Well, within a month, the book was finished. And I surprised myself because I had never done, I mean, it's, it's not just let's write this book. You have to have reflections. You have to have, you know, what did he say? What, it, there's a lot involved when you're writing a book about Lent or Advent. And so that's why I thought I couldn't do it. So when the book was finished, it went over to someone who's a good friend of ours. And uh, he read the book and he said, he sent it back to Julie. And he said, Julie, this book, because she wanted the book as to, she wanted to have it printed so that she could give it out to her benefactors. Mm -hmm. But he said to her, Julie, you can't do that. This is an excellent book. Two kudos to Susan. This book needs to be published. So she put me in touch with Ave Maria Press. And that's how we started talking. And they decided to take the book. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the book itself. It's a journey through Advent. And you know, when we think of Padre Pio and we think of the stigmata, we think of following him to Calvary. Right. We never think about following him to Bethlehem. Mm -hmm. But as I mentioned before, as a child, he had such a great devotion, always had a great devotion to the infant of uh, Jesus mm -hmm. because he knew him. There's a little story. When he was a little boy... He used to, he was a shepherd. He, he would be out with the flock all day. And around October, he would start fashioning little uh, characters to go into the nativity. The area around them was clay. So he'd take the clay and he'd fashion the sheep and so on. When he came to Jesus, he would model, remodel, remodel. And everybody would say, but when is he going to finish? Well, think about it. He knew the Christ child. He knew what he looked like, and he wanted to get it right. Right. So anyway. Right. <laughs> right. So his devotion to the Christ child is what I wanted in this book. I wanted the simple man to walk the path, to lead us to Bethlehem. Mm -hmm. because, and each day... I tell a different miracle. I start off, I mentioned my friend Ray Ewan, and I start my book off with him because he so inspired me. He told me many of the stories that are in this book. Mm -hmm. And so as we walk this path, each day I tell a miracle, the story behind it, and a reflection. Mm -hmm. And I have to say many people have been writing to me and calling me and telling me how much they're enjoying it because they never had this experience in Advent before to take a day and just reflect on this. So the object of the book is to follow Padre Pio to Bethlehem. And we on, on each 
One of the days we talk about, one of the miracles I talked about before, we talk about um, walking the halls at night and carrying the infant. Mm-hmm. And one of the um, Capuchins uh, reported to the, his superiors what he had seen. That was one of the miracles. Christmas Eve, 1924, everyone is in church waiting for Padre Pio to come in. And there are a bunch of women who were there every day for his masses. One woman in particular, Lucia. And she's watching Padre Pio's at the door. And all of a sudden, she sees the Christ child appear in his arms. And she's <laughs> like, she can't believe, half of the church is asleep waiting for him. But she's watching them. And he saw her. And at the end, he went over to her. And he said to her, what did you see? And she said, I saw everything. And he said to her, we'll talk later, but please don't say anything. Because this was all to do with the investigations that were going on, you know. But one of the things about the book is some of the, I mentioned before Our Lady in the Garden. I want to go back to that a minute because that tells you a lot about who Padre Pio is and what this book is about. In that miracle in 1905 when he was bilocated, it's a miracle that lasts 63 years from the day that Giovanna Rizzini is born till the day that Padre Pio dies. Now, Our Lady told him in the garden that she was entrusting this child. She told him he would meet her at St. Peter's Basilica. When she is 17 years old, she is having um, a faith crisis. She's having doubts. And she goes to St. Peter's Basilica to find a priest to talk to. And it's almost closing time. And she asked the sacristan. He said, no, there are no priests here. And no sooner does the sacristan walk away than this monk comes along and says, I'll hear your confession. And she goes into the confessional with him. And she tells him what her doubts are. And she comes out so happy because he's answered every question for her. And her friend is with her. And she says, wait, I want to wait. I want to wait until he comes out. I want to thank him. But he never came out. As he came out of nowhere, he left out of nowhere. A year later, she hears about Padre Pio. And she goes to San Giovanni Rotundo. And as he's walking in, he sees her. And he says to her, I was there the day that you were born, the day that your father died, because her father died that night. So she looked at him. She, you know, The next day she has confession with him. And when she kneels down, he says to her, I've been waiting a long time for you. And she said, that's impossible. I've never been here before. And he tells her about what happened in the garden. Now, what is so important about her? If we look at the life of St. Francis, there was a, a Roman woman, a noble woman, who was always at St. Francis's side, and her name was Jocopa. And she was there the day that St. Francis died. Giovanna was going to be a witness to Padre Pio's death, but she doesn't know this. So Padre Pio, at some point, she becomes his spiritual child, and she t- he tells her, to join the third order, which she does. And then when you do, you're given a name. 
he tells her to take the name Jokaber, and she says, it's an ugly name. I don't like it. He said, no, you must take that name because you will be there with me as Jokaber was there with St. Francis. The morning that Padre Pio dies, 2.30 in the morning, Giovanna has a vision, and she sees the cell of Padre Pio. She sees him lying in bed. She hears him saying, Maria, Jesu, Maria, Jesu, or continuously. She sees all the Capuchins that are around him praying with him. And she sees the moment when he dies. He says, I see two mothers, and he dies. So she's in San Giovanni, and she goes running there. And as one of the priests was walking out, she ran over and she said, I saw Padre Pio. I saw him die. He said, how did you know she, he died? And she tells him exactly what she said is exactly what went on in wow. that cell. Wow. And she was one of the people by whom he was beatified because she gave her testimony about her life and how Padre Pio was with her from the day she was born and she was there. When they unsealed the documents, the testimony of Padre Pio in 1905 about what happened in the garden, no one but the superiors knew that he was bilocated. That had never been told before, the first bilocation. But she knew he was there, and that's how he was beatified. That was one of the miracles. So that's a lot of what's in this. I, I love, and I, I have to say one other thing. I love the miracle over San Giovanni Rotunda. Uh, <laughs> what happens is, as I said, in Cherinola, where my friend Ray Ewan was stationed, that was the Air Force base. Now, they were told that in one of the schools in San Giovanni Rotundo that they were, they, the Germans had put ammunition in those schools, all right? It was a supply depot. So they were told to go in and bomb the school. So they set out, I don't know how many planes, but they set out, and the commander from, San, uh, from Cherinola is also on the plane. And as they're approaching San Giovanni and they're ready to start bombing this area, a monk appears in the sky with his arms outstretched. And the bombs are falling off going into the forest. And the planes turn around and go back. And the pilots are like, what's happening? You know? <laughs> and they go back to base. Now, the, the commander says... Somebody tells the commander, there's this great monk who lives on a mountain, and they say he performs miracles. Now, if it were me, I would have got in my car, drove there immediately in my Jeep. He said, well, when I can, I'll go. <laughs> and he, after, after the Germans were gone, he goes to um, San Giovanni, and he walks into the sacristy, and he sees, he sees Padre Pio. He goes, that was the monk that was in the sky. So he walks over to him, and Padre Pio says to him, you're the one who tried to kill us. <laughs> <laughs> and so he kneels down in front of Padre Pio. He was not a Catholic. 
kneels down in front of him. Padre Pio blesses him. He eventually did become a Catholic. But I think that's one of the funniest and most amazing stories. Oh, yeah, my gosh. But, you know, so it's not, the book is, has its light of moments. I mean, it has some serious stuff. But it's a beautiful journey to Bethlehem and a lot yeah. of beautiful stories. I, I would highly life. recommend it, to, even you. though we're somewhat into Advent. But buy it, use it for the balance of Advent next year, every year. I think it's not you simply because it. Susan, we're friends, but but I think it's extraordinarily Thank well you. done. And it's a great reflection to prepare for Christmas, without a doubt. I, I think that it's a book that can be read all year round. Yes. And it wouldn't hurt to say a prayer every day at the end of the job. Amen. (laughs) Amen. Amen to that. that. (laughs) Yeah, that I I love that story of uh, him diverting the bombers. That's one of the stories why my kids are like, he's a superhero. So, uh, (laughs) so this is let me be frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. Uh, His Excellency has been talking with Susan D. Bartoli, author of "Welcoming the Christ Child" with Padre Pio, a book of reflections for Advent. Um, based on stories of the great saint himself. Uh, We'll be right back uh, with a listener question. Hey, it's Matt from Restless on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network. Each week on Restless, we young adults restlessly seek the face of Christ in today's crazy and mixed up world. Join us each Friday at noon on 1350 AM, 103.9 FM, the Veritas app, or wherever you get your shows. Hope to see you there. Okay, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Excellency, very interesting question this week. So mm-hmm. here's, here's what our, our listener wrote in. She wrote, Your Excellency, sometimes while praying the sorrowful mysteries of the rosary, I feel a bit, bit sheepish asking Our Lady to pray for us when surely her main concern must be the passion and death of her son. I experience a wish not to add to her burdens, even though I know intellectually that the greater burden would be for me not to pray. I would love to hear your Excellency's thoughts. Well, I would say this. I think the 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 person who asked the question already intuited what the answer is. But first, there is um, I'm very deeply impressed by the spiritual empathy that the writer has for Our Lady in the moment of of the Lord's passion. But remember, it was a liberating passion. Nothing about Our Lady was about Our Lady, but all about her Lord and our Lord and her Son. So in a sense, it is a great testimony to the person's faith that they feel this empathy. But you must ask, because that is why the Lord offered his life, to give us life. And there's no need to be afraid to ask because his love is everlasting and his love is so deep and profound that the sorrows all right, are there, are real, but they don't last, right, as we know. So um, I would, and I would say to everyone, particularly at the foot of the cross is where we should put all of our intentions and our prayers before the Lord for that very reason. Excellent. Wonderful. Okay, so if you have a question for Bishop Frank, you can send it in to us on social media or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So is Veritas Catholic Network. And we'd like to thank our sponsor, Foundations in Faith. It's a grant from the St. Therese Fund for Evangelization that makes it possible for us to bring Let Me Be Frank to you. 
Foundations in Faith is committed to supporting and transforming pastoral ministries in the Diocese of Bridgeport, and you can learn more about their outstanding work at foundationsinfaith.org. And Susan DiBartoli, thank you so much for joining us today. Tell us where people can uh, find you for pilgrimages and also for your wonderful book. Uh, For my book, you can get my book on Ave Maria Press, Amazon, and Barnes & Noble. My pilgrimages are littleflowerpilgrimages.com. You can see all our pilgrimages there, all of Bishop Frank's pilgrimages there. (laughs) And (laughs) we'd love to have you join us. (laughs) And uh, that's it. Those are my two. Awesome. Great. Great. Susan, it's always good to see you. It's tremendous. Keep up that great work because you have touched many people's lives by your book and by fostering the pilgrimages. So, I mean, there is much, there is much fruit you can bring to the Lord, right? Thank you. Thank you so much, Bishop Frank. You're a great inspiration to me. I have to say you're amazing. And you're an amazing spiritual director too. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. So excellent. Before we go, would you please give us your blessing? Yes. Let's pray, of course, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. As these last days of Advent come to a close, dear Lord, we ask that you purify our minds and cleanse our hearts that we may receive the gift of the child in Bethlehem and see him with the eyes of true faith that was born to us a Savior, Redeemer, and the Prince of Peace. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Steve, I'll see you next week. Susan, I'll see you on campus, wherever our paths pass. I will see you then. Okay.